Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are, and welcome to the Politics Guys with your hosts, Dave Carson and Michael Darnowski. Welcome to the Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My co-host this week, as always, is Cleveland area attorney and sometime Republican strategist Jay Carson. Well, Jay, as you would expect, we've got mail. We get lots of mail, and uh, you know, with uh, with me taking that extra week off for vacation, we have quite a backlog of great viewer questions, and uh, I'm ready to get to them. If you are, all right, let's 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 have them. Okay, first, this from Andrew. Um, I, I wanted to start with this because, uh, you know, like I said, we get a lot of great email. This is probably one of the uh, most sort of personally, I don't know, touching, I guess you could say, emails that I think we've gotten. Uh, I just wanted to share with everyone. So Andrew writes, I just wanted to send a quick email of thanks to you and Jay. I'm a passionate and strongly opinionated person, and sometimes that makes me argumentative and angry when I feel that there is something wrong going on or someone is being hurt, especially when it's people who can't protect or defend themselves. But listening to you two disagree and still respect each other, along with your mutual willingness to look at evidence and consider both sides before reacting, has mellowed me out in every single aspect of my life. Even my relationship with my girlfriend and roommates is better because of you two. We're in danger of polarizing in America to the point where it's just two sides screaming at each other. We need shows like The Politics Guys to teach us that the only way we can truly make America great is to put aside our strong emotions and selfishness and work together. Not to further our own partisan opinions, but to make this nation whole. Please don't ever go off the air. You guys are making a difference, at least to me anyway. Oh, wow. Thank you, Andy. Yeah. That's that's really, really kind and very meaningful. And, uh... Uh, it's just one of the services we provide. I mean, yeah. uh, uh, yes, healing all their other personal relationships. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's, we certainly didn't expect we'd ever have that sort of impact, but I uh, appreciate your thoughts. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's like I said, we, of course, that's the reason we actually started the show is to get people to think along those lines, or at least to help people who are inclined to do that anyway. And, and when we hear from someone and that, that that's clearly working and making a difference that that makes, that really matters an awful lot to us. So thank you so much, Andrew, for that. Okay, next we have Bob from Manchester in the UK. All right. Bob writes, hello and thank you for your excellent podcast. It's good to hear reasoned, intelligent debate when so many other podcasts nowadays are hysterical and alarmist. Well done. I just wanted to make the point that when people talk about progress and use the term progressive, there is the unspoken assumption that progress, whatever that really means, is toward something good. And in my view, it's far from self-evident that that's the case. I think there is a very strong strain of utopian thinking in the liberal movement, and while this is in some ways a good thing, it has also led to a deeply intolerant obsession with moral purity in which the slightest non-politically correct utterance, which we all make from time to time, is grounds for ostracizing people and campaigning to get them fired and or publicly shamed. I worry that unless this changes, then the liberal movement will end up turning on itself. If this is progress, I'm not sure that I want it. I wonder what your thoughts are on the matter. Now, Jay, I, I read this. Uh, when I saw this email come in, I thought, well, this is totally right in your wheelhouse. So why don't you start? <laughs> this is a fake letter that Jay wrote. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but go ahead. Uh, you know, I, I, as, as a conservative, you know, one of the sort of tenets of conservatism is that human nature has no history. 
Um, meaning that to some extent, uh, you know, as people, do we ever get, get better? Uh, that sort of takes the dismal view of, of probably not. Uh, I, I would be a little more optimistic than that uh, and say, listen, I think we certainly have had uh, a lot of progress. Uh, you know, the way we, we view, uh, ourselves and, and our, our, our fellow uh, men and women, um, you know, as compared to other times in history. Um, uh, that said, I think your, your point's well taken. Um, you know, at what point does it, um, you know, be, become something that's, that's, uh, uh, not helpful. The, you know, the, the overly political, uh, political correctness, uh, of our world where, where people can't really speak their, speak their thoughts without being accused of, of some, some ism. Um, but but no, I, I think I think progress happens. But I'm also, as a conservative, very skeptical of the extent to which the government uh, can in, enforce that that progress or create that progress. And I, and I assume when you're talking, you're talking about progress in becoming better people, becoming a more uh, more you know sure equal, believing equal rights. And I'm I'm not expressing myself well. I'm getting all all cut up here. Um, as, as opposed to just simply economic uh, or scientific progress, um, but uh, no, and I think Jay, uh, this is this is something that you and I have agreed on for well for decades now. At this point, I I, I share a, a lot of that view. I think that, like you, that I believe that uh, humanity has progressed and that uh, things are better off and we are safer and happier and in, in so many ways and a more equal society and, you know, in so many ways. And that's, that's all good stuff. Uh, and I think that it can, we, it, you can get into that danger of, you know, utopian thinking as Bob talks about it, where we say, well, if only we just took off these, these, uh, uh, these things that are stopping our progress, if we could only just get these evil Republicans out of the way, we could have this shiny, happy society and so forth. And, and, and like you, I am taken aback sometimes when I think government moves too quickly. Because if we've learned anything from history, we've learned that the smartest people in the room, whoever they are, are not nearly as smart as they think they are. And when we try to do big things too quickly, there are unintended consequences. So while I am certainly a little more comfortable with government doing things than you are, which is why I'm on the left and you're on the right. Sure. I also believe that when government acts, oftentimes it's better for that action to be incremental as opposed to taking great leaps forward, as it were, because oftentimes you end up leaping into the abyss and there are awful things right. that happen. There was, a, there was a guy – couple decades back who wanted to take some great leaps forward and killed about 30 million people doing it but so so yeah bob i I absolutely agree i think that progress is a good thing and it's happened and certainly and the government can't has and can play a role in that but it's easy to get uh, a little bit too ahead of ourselves and that's something that i think we on the left need to watch for just like i think so we tend to be on the left a little too maybe optimistic about what government can do. I think that people on the right sometimes tend to be a little too pessimistic, which is why I think it's great that we have a left and a right to sort of try to balance this, yeah. this stuff out. So, all right. Uh, you know, I, I just add there's, there's, this is phrase has been, been around for a while, but it's, it's popped up more recently that, you know, look, uh, politics is downstream from culture. Uh, 
Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And I think that's that's something we we look at is is uh, from a conservative aspect. You don't expect the government to create the new society. Rather, it, it grows up organically uh, and then is is manifested through through a government. Um, uh, and, and I guess that's the you know, if you right. want a better society, try to be better people rather than. than no. And, and I think to a certain extent, I, I agree with that. I believe government can can nudge and, and push and kind of, uh, you know, Form things in a certain way, but the heavy lifting has to come from society, from culture, that sort of thing. So, so in that sense, I guess you could say I'm, you know, somewhat temperamentally conservative on that. So, Burkean, that's yeah, a very Burkean. There you go. Absolutely. Well, that's you know one of my heroes. So, all right. Next is Zach from Philadelphia. Now, Zach has a what if question for us that goes like this. If it was found that the Trump campaign was in communication with anyone, whether it be a foreign or domestic entity, government, or anyone else for that matter, to rig the election so that Trump would win, what are the consequences of that finding? Would the Trump presidency be valid at all? Would there be a special U.S. election to elect a new president, vice president, and executive branch of government? I'm assuming that in the interim, the Speaker of the House would take over as president, but honestly, I don't know, and I think a lot of the country wouldn't know what would happen next if that were the case. I thought that was an interesting question and something we, you know, we, we haven't uh, delved into. I think in part because I don't think, Jay, either you or I think that anything like that is going to be uncovered. But let, right. let's say, again, this is a what if, and there are a number of ongoing investigations. Let's say that something did come up, that the president was in some way was in collusion with the Russians, uh, you know, about, you know, and this were, you know, potentially, we've talked about this before, that certain right. types... Dear, dear Vlad, please help me out and I'll help you out. Yeah, and obviously there wouldn't be anything like that, but, you know, there there were some pretty serious allegations. If they were, if any of these allegations out there were proven true, well, what would happen, at least in my take on this is... I, well, I, I think, and again, this is a hypothetical because, yeah. you know... It's we're not saying before. the president's guilty of anything, uh, but... I think it would be a case of the House would uh, vote to impeach uh, the president and the Senate would, in fact, impeach the president. Uh, and then uh, Mike Pence would become the next president. Exactly. That That's exactly what would happen. So and, and that's how the process works. The House, the House votes, votes to impeach. If the president is impeached by the House, then the Senate conducts a trial. And uh, then if that if the if the Senate by its uh, two thirds, I believe it is, majority, finds that the president is in fact guilty of what he's being charged with, then the president is removed from office and the vice president takes over. Now, would would that mean some people would say, well, wouldn't you know, vice president and at that point President Pence feel the need to resign since his election was tainted as well? I mean, we can't really answer that question, obviously. You can't get in the heads of in the head of Mike Pence, certainly, but I would expect not. I think, you know, what do you Yeah, absent absent some indication that he was uh Exactly. Pardoned. Yeah, exactly. No, uh, no if I, you look, I mean, the, maybe the closest example obviously would be the, the Nixon presidency where you had actually a, a vice president resign before the president yeah. on on completely separate scandal. Um uh, but you ended up with a president who had, who had never been elected by anyone. Yeah. So I think that yeah, if if that happens, the uh uh the the likely final result will be uh, President Pence essentially. Yep. So, all right. Moving on. Um, Albeit, he would have a rough re-election. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah, certainly so. <laughs> just, um, just as just as President Ford did. So. Yeah. Okay. Next, we have Aaron, who thanks us for what he sees as our reasonable and insightful coverage on abortion, followed by a question, which is. 
Could you both share what your viewpoint on abortion is and why you feel the way you do about this issue? Yes, is it is your position moral, civil, philosophical? I'm genuinely interested to hear from someone who's proven to be reasonable and understands the other side. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, thanks. Yeah. Well, that's that's a that's a this is a tough a tough one to do quickly. Um, I, I would I would start by saying the, where I come from. I am uh, pro life. Uh, I come from that uh, less from a religious standpoint than I do from a um, constitutional um, uh, standpoint. Uh, and just as a, a I guess a, a practical matter, I think Roe versus Wade was was wrongly decided uh, in that that there is is not these you know right to privacies lurking in the penumbras, um, which is that's the language that the the, the court used. Uh, of of the uh, or other uh, explicitly stated rights, uh, and I think it was you know sort of the biggest case of judicial activism that we've ever seen. Um, that said, that's in the constitutional standpoint. On the the moral standpoint, uh, I I think if there is a uh, opportunity um, that uh, to to create a, a have a new life uh, uh, enter the world, uh, I think we ought to give that every uh, every opportunity so I mean I, I you know my position I'm, I'm not an abortion absolutist um, uh, but uh, I, I would say pro-life based on 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 those those two ideas uh, if you ask me does life begin at conception uh, I think that's a really a tougher question and I'm not sure but like the court I would agree that there there is a point where uh, the unborn fetus has has a right to uh, uh, that is is co-equal, if not superior, uh, to that of uh, of the mother. Yeah, you know, I, I agree with you on on a lot of that, Jay. I'm I'm really torn. Uh, I tend to well, I could I could have said practically everything you said. I, I certainly think that Roe versus Wade was. A, if you if you read the opinion, um, it's a pretty tortured logic in that opinion. But I agree with the policy outcome. Um, you know, I I have. I believe that women have a right to do what they want with their own body. And as a fetus grows, I believe as a matter of, uh, I guess you could say as a matter of ethics, as a matter maybe of biology in a sense that the, the right of that, of that, you know, potential human life becomes a greater and greater countervailing factor. And once you get to the point of viability, that's when that scale, you know, tips. I think, and, and it seems to me that that is sort of what Roe versus Wade sort of says from a policy standpoint. Though it's a lot harder for me to see sort of the constitutional backing of that. You know that that right. argument. If it, had been, is, if it had been a legislative decision, that would be something different. Yeah, but but yeah. then but then I think of cases where you know there are women in these deeply conservative states that want to ban all abortions, even in case of you know rape, incest, and and threat to the life of the mother. And then, and then I think, my, my God, what would happen if we didn't have the protection of Roe versus Wade? These women would be put in a, just a, a horribly awful position. And so I, I, I am torn. I, I believe that we should err on the side of life, but I also believe that women have a, a, a right to, you know, to do what they want with their bodies. And you, and this is, you know, this is a tough question, right? You and I both think both agree that mm-hmm. and you have these, these, uh, uh, different sort of rights to consider. And this is why I think people get so worked up. And, and I don't come at it from a religious perspective, obviously, either. 
Uh, and that makes a big difference because if you believe that, you know, at the moment of conception, a new being is created with a, with an immortal soul and so forth, and you're killing this, this life with this immortal soul and so forth. Well, that, that's a whole different way of looking at it. I don't see it that right. way at all, but. And, and I agree. And I, I don't, I don't know that I particularly see it that way either, but I would say, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think that's a frivolous way to look at that. I don't think that's a, a frivolous argument. To, if that's what you believe, then you've got to be pretty strong against it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I think I think that sort of addresses it at least as much we can without kind of going into an awful a lot of detail. I mean, I, I think uh, abortion in the end, I think abortion should be very rare, but I think that women should have recourse to terminate a pregnancy under uh, a lot of circumstances, under almost any circumstances, until uh, viability, certainly. Um, but of course, I am deeply troubled under those few instances where abortion is used as a form of birth control. I think the right exaggerates the extent to which that happens. But of course, I, I, I do not believe that that's a, that's a good thing. I have ethical, serious ethical uh, concerns with that. So, okay. Moving on. Moving on, a listener who's been with us from the very beginning, I mean, episode one, uh, Mark from Texas. Mark writes, it feels like my emails and forum posts are being ignored by my representatives. Uh, and Mark is a, a liberal in, in Texas. Um, and he says, if I vote in the Republican primary, will they be more responsive? It would feel good to vote against Ted Cruz twice in the midterm. <laughs> I feel I fully intend on being honest about my views when I'm at the precinct and Senate conventions, and I don't plan on being a fifth columnist and strategically voting for a silly candidate as a way of helping Democrats. But is there anything else I could be thinking about before I plunge into enemy territory? Uh, Jay, you know, what do you think? Now, I think we can look at this question more broadly. From the perspective of, for instance, let's say, like Mark, you're a, a more left-leaning person in a state like Texas, or mm-hmm. if you're a more right-leaning person in a state like California. Right. Um, you know, Mark, I guess I'd just say, you know, follow your heart. Um, <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, I think, I think no, I think the, the best thing to, to realize, and this is, you know, I, I grew up in a, uh, I still live in a, a predominantly Democratic uh, area, and, you know, my, my parents would, would often, you know, register, uh, take a, a Democratic primary ballot uh, simply because that was where the only choice was going to be. Uh, you know, there would be a Republican candidate on the ballot who would get, you know, 15, 25 percent of the vote. Um, so if you wanted to have any meaningful voice in, in who your representative was, uh, you would have to choose between the two Democrats in the primary. So I understand that. And I, I don't think it's being a fifth columnist in those sort of instances to do that. Um, I, I do think in the long term, though, uh, that kind of voting is not helpful to your actual party, uh, because what happens is you 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 stop building that that party. Um, so I, I think uh, do it. Do what you feel is right. If you believe there is a better uh, candidate who would uh, uh, who would win. Um uh, and, uh, you know, then uh, go ahead and vote yeah. for him. Uh, otherwise, you know, I would stick with building your own party. Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a great response, and, and I tend to agree almost entirely with that. I can see, you know, what, what Mark is saying, and I think it's a great point you make, Jay. You know, right now, re-election rates for members of Congress are, are awfully high. They've been awfully high for a while. We're talking high 80s, low to mid 90% of the time. And so 
like you point out, a lot of times the only real action is in the primary. And so if you have a choice of if you want to make a difference and say you're a liberal in a conservative area and you have a chance between helping to promote a more or less conservative candidate, you can certainly understand that. And I agree it's not a a fifth columnist sort of thing to do. It's a reasonable thing to do. But as you point out, then you, you, you you, you want to build your own party because in the long term, that's what's going to provide a, a, a real alternative. And so uh, I think it's maybe, you know, you take that longer or shorter term sort of look, but it, it certainly can be frustrating to be in an area where it just feels like that your voice isn't really being heard. All right. Um, moving on. Next, we have uh, another longtime listener, Emily, from Bracelip, just outside of London, England. Uh, Emily writes, What do you guys make of the recent student protests at Millbury College against Charles Murray? I can understand both sides of the argument, whereby some students felt particularly aggrieved against Murray's conservative views, such as the views he espouses in the bell curve, but I also don't agree with the attempts to silence free speech, as it is our constitutionally enshrined First Amendment right. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this, especially Jay, since as far as I can remember, I think he has recommended a couple of Murray's books on the podcast. Jay? Absolutely. Well, thank you, Emily. <clears throat> and Emily, yeah, from being one of our original fans, uh, introducing us to the UK, um, which is uh, which has been uh, fantastic. Um, I am a big fan of Charles Murray, uh, and I think his his books, again, particularly coming apart, is is very important. Um, you know, students have a right to uh, protest if they don't like something, but it's also something different to shout someone down. <clears throat> Uh, and, and I think Murray's views, if you if you read the bell curve, uh, you know, he, he doesn't say what they say he's he's saying. In fact, in numerous occasions, he said he thinks racial differences in intelligence are are minimal or, or insignificant uh, when you look at the, the bigger picture of, of uh, uh, human intelligence. Those those distinctions are are small and, and uh, again, not not terribly meaningful. Um and and I think he's generally a very nice, decent uh, human being. And if if you've read some of his other stuff, it's very much about uh, let's come together and and be more of a, a you know pluralistic, uh, but at the same time unified society. Um, I am heartened by some of the reaction to the Middlebury uh, uh, College stuff, uh, and that being the professors who have signed an online statement. Uh, decrying what happened and and make going so far as to make uh, statements such as look it's not the college's job uh, to to make you feel um, uh, you know happy with your own values it's not uh, if someone says something you disagree with that's not violence uh, and I think that's that's hugely important um, if you want to disagree uh, you can carry a sign outside uh, you can go inside and maybe ask a pointed question if that's um, the the format, uh, but simply shouting someone down, and then you know there was this was actually a violent attack uh, where one professor was hospitalized. Uh, it's that's that's mob violence, and uh, uh, that's something we should uh, oppose at at absolutely every level. Um, I guess the the final point is you know how did it get to this that students thought that this might be okay, uh, and that's maybe the more troubling question. I mean, Mike, you and I have. Uh, sort of fought the forces of political correctness for 20 some years now, I suppose less now that we're out of college. But, um, you know, this, this was very much something that look 20 years ago, this was something I was concerned was going to happen eventually. Um, 
that you would get this this sort of sense of of uh, it's it's almost an entitlement of look I'm so right I'm allowed to be I'm allowed to be violent I'm allowed to be wrong and that's that's really what leads societies down uh, uh, some some dark paths so. Yeah, I, I agree entirely, Jay. I'm sure it doesn't come as a surprise to you. Uh, and, and in fact, I, I mean, I agree with your assessment of Murray. He's been incredibly mischaracterized. And, and, and like you, I feel this is part of a, you know, bigger, more troubling trend of people not really trying to engage with other folks' ideas, uh, but just simply shouting them down. And, 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 and I think that, you know, certainly there are a lot of ideas out there in the alt-right and other sort of things that are, that are repugnant. But the way to but we should point out, I mean, Murray is certainly not no. alt right. No, I mean, he's certainly not a Bannon or a uh, um, no. But uh, I mean, the other guy, I would Milos kind of kind of character. Yeah, but I mean, I would even support the right of somebody like that, an alt right person, to speak because I actually want those views to get out there. I want those views to be challenged in, in open and you know, public debate so people can see. How ridiculous! How awful! How repugnant they are! But by and shouting, I think I think, I think there's. I'm sorry, Keeper. No, that's you, okay. But, but this is a good point. Um, there's also a difference between debating and and debunking those ideas and shouting them down. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. I think is what you're talking about is is the former. Uh, yeah. Is yeah. Let's let them get out there and then you know pull them apart and look how ridiculous this is, rather than just simply shouting them down, saying you're a racist. Yeah, I mean, if you know, I think one thing we've learned over history is that shouting someone's ideas down, that really doesn't, that doesn't work in the long term. It ends up being self-defeating. And sure, maybe you feel good about yourself for doing that. But in the long run, you actually are, I think, are working against your interest, which is if you, in fact, have the better ideas the ones that are more palatable to people that that are better for you know human progress and society and equality and so forth well put those ideas out there and you know put them up to the challenge against these other ideas and if they're better ideas this is right what we believe in in terms of how democracy is supposed to work those ideas will win and if not then we need to get into questioning the whole nature of democracy which is of course a, another conversation without a doubt so all right um moving on Thank you, Emily. Yeah, thanks, Emily. Always <laughs> great to hear from you. Next, we have Jessica from Los Angeles. Uh, Jessica has become a regular presence in our email inbox, and she always has thoughtful and interesting things to say about our shows. Uh, she recently took issue with what she called my incredibly silly comparison of segregated water fountains to transgendered people using the bathroom of their choice. Uh, Jessica explains... First, it's silly because there is actually no widespread and systematic discrimination against transgenders as there was against blacks. Secondly, it's not natural to choose your gender. To have a penis and choose to live as a woman is a choice. And it's a choice that, quite frankly, makes a large percentage of Americans uncomfortable. Thirdly, there is only one difference between black people and white people, the amount of melanin in their skin. Men and women are different. They have different hormones, different physical abilities, different brain usage, different developmental needs, and different cultural responsibilities. Procreation. Uh, to, uh, to argue otherwise is anti-science. It's totally inappropriate for any governing body, politically or culturally, to wake up one day and decide to redefine gender and throw it into the left's catch-all bucket of civil rights. Doing this has incredibly far-reaching implications that go beyond, far beyond, using a urinal or not. So there was a lot there, obviously. Um, yeah. So 
Okay, Jessica, that's Jessica's first point. I would disagree. I believe there is widespread and systematic discrimination against transgendered people. And so right there, I think fundamentally we disagree. But on her second and third points, uh, or on your second and third points, Jessica, because um, I hope you're listening, I agree that being transgendered is different from being a member of a racial group. But I don't agree that it's exactly a choice any more than I believe that people choose to be homosexual. Now, I'm certainly not anti-science, but my understanding of the science, which admittedly is, you know, from a, from a layman's perspective, is that there are in fact genetic predispositions to gender orientation, though at this point we don't really understand them very well at all yet. And so I don't really have a problem with, uh, with states or local governments, you know, passing this sort of legislation. I think this, we should let the democratic process work its way out. What I have a problem with particularly is when state governments decide that they're not going to let local governments do this, which to me seems to be kind of fundamentally against what conservatives believe in that local governments are closer to the people. And so therefore they should be the ones who are making these decisions where in some states they said, well, yeah, we believe that. But in this case, we're going to pander to our far right constituencies and not let the local governments do that. Um, Jay, any thoughts on this? Well, I think Jessica, you know, hit a lot of good points. I, I would agree. I think transgenders, uh, transgenderism is something different than than racial uh, discrimination. Uh, not that that transgendered people aren't discriminated against, uh, but that it's it is a a much rarer, different uh, sort of situation. Um, they are uh, what the Supreme Court would have called uh, discrete and insular minorities. Um, you know, there is there is not a uh, you know one sort of I guess transgender group or or like a transgender neighborhood or race, right? You know what I mean? It's 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 individuals here and there, um, which to me supports the what you sort of said is let's let's handle this on the most local level possible and and you know also was was this ever really a, a problem? Um, uh, again, discrimination against transgender people. May have been a problem, but it was not the type of Jim Crow type uh, problem. Uh, that, yeah, that, I, I hear what you're saying. I think though there was never there was never legislation. There was never a system uh, designed right. to keep transgender people down. It was just sort of. Uh, but I, I, it, it, it was it was it was de facto rather than the jury, I guess. I, you know, I feel like in, in a lot of ways this is. There, there are certain similarities between this and the sort of issues of uh, homosexuality. And, you know, as, for instance, for, for a long, long time, uh, homosexuality was, was clearly something that was not just frowned upon, but actually illegal. Uh, and, and, you know, until very recently, actually, uh, uh, there are still laws on the books, in fact. And, and, you know, a lot of, a lot of people who were gay were in the closet and so forth. And so the, the homosexual population was greater than what we thought because people had been just so cult. I mean, the, the, the entire culture basically pushed against this. And now as our culture has become more open and welcoming to these differences that, I said science believes I think in many cases actually have some genetic determinants that we're finding out that things that maybe in the past we thought were choices uh, actually aren't choices and to me kind of the fundamental basis of civil rights legislation is to 
protect people from being discriminated against based on things over which they don't really have control. And and as science, you know, more and more shows that there are other things just than race and gender that are like this, then I think civil rights legislation should adjust to take this into account. All right. I mean, I, I, I get you on the I, – I, I would agree that I I don't see being transgender necessarily as, as a choice in, in that a, you – someone – I mean, there, there may be an ultimate choice to say I'm going to have – reassignment surgery procedures what have you uh but but i agree there's there's something else there that that you have the feeling that yeah. you're in the the wrong body because yeah. it, it's hard know. i think it's hard for most people to to say well someone would say hey i think i'll be transgendered as like hey i right. think i'll root for the the reds or something like that i mean it's a uh, you know it, it obviously that's not what goes on and and maybe i'm maybe i'm oversimplifying the argument in fact i know i am i think people on the right who object to this sort of thing would say well it's not like that it's more the case that society kind of subtly pushes people and makes them feel makes them question these things that they shouldn't sure. be questioned. Now, I disagree with that, but I well, just... There, I, th- I think there's... I mean, I, I don't think the two have to be mutually exclusive. No, no. Yeah, so I just wanted but. to make sure I wasn't, you know, creating a straw man uh, sort of argument here. So, all right. Um, Next, we have Dave from San Francisco. Dave writes, would you guys please take a few minutes to define the underlying philosophies and principles that define the terms liberal and conservative? And I also think it would be great if Jay made the case for liberalism and Mike made the case for conservatism. Intellectually, you are both up to the task. Thanks, Dave. Um, I hope we are. <laughs> and you'd help set the example of political discourse that we should all be having. I mean, if someone can't explain the opposition's position, how can that person legitimately oppose it? Keep up the great work. I thought that was a great point that Dave makes. That is. You know, um, and I think that's also one of the best ways to try to understand the other side of any issue is to try to make the case for that. And once you start to do that, and there's been some research on this too, suggesting that that's one of the best ways for us to get out of our filter bubbles is to not just read stuff that or watch stuff that the other side is putting out there, but to actually make the strongest possible case for that side. And that really does something to your mind in, in a very kind of literal way, some researchers said. So I do think we're up to the task. What do you think, Jay? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so should I start with the, the how, I, how I would define liberalism? Yeah. Now, to be fair, we should point this out. Since I have, in fact, in the past been a I was never a card-carrying conservative. They never gave out cards, but I have been on both sides. Heritage Foundation intern. There you go. I was, in fact, a Heritage (laughs) Foundation intern back in the day, so I have some serious uh, conservative credentials. Uh, I'm a big fan of the movement, further right than Jay was. So this might be a little easier for me than for Jay, but I know that Jay's going to do a great job. Go ahead, Jay. Sure. First, first of all, I do want to define what we're talking about, liberalism and conservatism, uh, as, as those terms are used in contemporary, uh, you know, America or, or, or Western Europe, yeah, great uh, point. as yeah. opposed to sort of the classical uh, liberalism, which is more actual conservatism now. Yeah. Uh, but uh, I would say liberalism begins from the idea, and this was expressed by uh, Thomas Hobbes in that uh, life is uh, nasty, brutish, and short. Um, uh, things are really crummy, uh, and people, uh, because of this, uh, need uh, a protector, and they they find that protector uh, by joining together to form governments. 
uh, and that those governments uh, then have the power and the authority and the moral responsibility uh, to take on the betterment of, of humankind and to address the inequalities of, of life where they arise and to sort of pave the, the path uh, to, to even out those, those further inequalities. So that was Hobbes talking in England in the 1600s. Uh, Rousseau picked up on it uh, with the idea of a social contract. Uh, and Rousseau's idea was a little different than Hobbes. He thought actually things were pretty good until we had governments, uh, but we can have better governments. Um, and, and he very much believed in uh, sort of the, the revolutionary type uh, uh, taking a big step. And the, the French Revolution is, is, is big in, uh, in liberalism in that it infused also the idea of, of rationalism, of we're going to throw out uh, the, the, uh, um, uh, the uh, religious uh, part that had been part of government, which we tend to forget, but that's how governments really organize themselves for most of history. Um, and we're going to be governed by pure reason. Now, it didn't work out so well for the, the French um, yeah. because it turns out some of those people were not terribly reasonable. Uh, but uh, that it was the same idea of you would have – uh, a, a government that was devoted to uh, the people and uh, sort of uh, devoted to secular uh, governance rather than uh, looking for uh, sort of divine principles to guide itself by. And that uh, is, is also what was espoused um, in, in uh, modern-day liberalism, uh, the belief that, uh, listen, there are inequalities out there and the government is the only entity – with the power to fix those. Uh, and they therefore ought to do that uh, based, and again, it ought to be, you know, eliminating racial inequalities. Uh, it's grown to other things that we just talked about, transgender, so forth, that no one ever would have imagined in Hobbes' day. Um, and uh, uh, as, as well as uh, uh, the economic um, inequalities. So I guess that's my, my take on what liberalism, the principles that undergird liberalism um, you know, maybe there's a few other steps that you can say in terms of what types of government actions, uh, a lot of, you know, making work programs, a lot of government spending, the idea is you spend a lot. Uh, that comes into uh, uh, the Keynesian uh, economics of, of you sort of spend money to make money, uh, that government spends money, it, it uh, goes out uh, and is uh, circulated through the system that way, uh, as opposed to the idea of, of government not collecting the money in the first place, but... Okay. Is that, is that was that reasonable? You think? Yeah, I think so. I think so. I I, I might have uh, stressed a few things a little differently, but yeah, I think uh, you did a pretty good job. Uh, let me. I hope I can do as good a job. Now, my job's a little different in that there are pretty clearly, I think, two uh, still very strong strains of modern conservatism. There's the uh, libertarian strain, the kind of, you call them the freedom conservatives, I guess you could say. Uh, and then there are the cultural conservatives, and they're a very real force in modern American politics. And so while they kind of come together in sort of an uneasy coalition, I think they, they need to be considered separately. And so I'll start with the group that's sort of still, to a certain extent, uh, I, I feel a certain affinity for, and that's the uh, the freedom conservatives, the libertarian type folks, and their basic belief, I think, is that is that government. Uh, well, is, is that 
freedom is one of the most important values and that in fact one of the key things the government was formed to do is to uh to, to promote and guarantee the freedom of people within uh within the state and then that is that's important not just because freedom sounds like a good thing but that the bigger government gets there's a tendency for well for power to corrupt and for big government to start becoming oppressive and to limit the freedom of people. And, you know, more than just limiting the freedom, whereas, you know, you say, well, you can't go out and shoot somebody else just because you're having a bad day. I mean, there's no one who thinks that's a good idea. But but essentially being coercive and, and forcing people into what's an, uh, an oppressive state, essentially. And and I think there's a lot to be said for that. Um I think certainly that uh, big government can be uh, sclerotic, can be oppressive, and can do some serious damage to people's liberty, and that's something that we need to keep in mind. Uh, along with that, I think, is the argument that the the people acting on their own or through the market tend to be tend to make better decisions tend to come to better ultimate outcomes than one sort of centralized authority that's making decisions for the entire country especially when it's a large and diverse country and i think there's something to be said for that as well i don't think it's as broadly applicable as many conservatives would say but i think that that's a a very serious argument that you know should really be considered and oftentimes isn't perhaps considered uh as as much by uh, liberals as it should be so that to me is sort of the libertarian type of argument uh now the cultural conservative argument's a little bit different and this is that you know this is a that a country is is more than just a series of laws it's it's a series of beliefs it's a community it's a group that comes together uh believing in certain things and things that were bound together by more than just laws were bound together even more importantly by traditions, by the dead hand of the past, which actually isn't so dead that has formed what we are today. And when we make big changes to that in the name of progress, we're disturbing a lot more than we really might expect. And a lot of those changes are going to end up causing some real damage to our society in ways that we can't possibly comprehend because we're not nearly as bright as we think we are. And and I think there's something to be said for that as well. That seems to me to be entirely reasonable. Certainly there's a, a long history of liberal hubris and arrogance uh, about uh, progress, something we talked about earlier. And and so I think that those cultural conservatives you know, can make a reasonable case and do have some reasonable points about that, although fundamentally I think obviously I part, part ways with them. So those, I think, are the two kind of strains in conservative thought. What do you think, Jay? Did I did I? I think I think that was very well said. I think that that was a good definition there. You know, it's it's difficult for me, as I'm sure it was for you, in in kind of making that case to not raise objections to the own points I was making, and and to listeners say, you know, while we may not agree with those, I think you know we we at least feel like we understand where the other side's coming from, which I think is pretty important. Sure, and I you know I would just add to to what I said that the. The idea of having a, you know, a, a regulatory state, in a lot of ways. Um, look, I, I think it's pretty good. We have a, we have an FDA. Um, you know, that's sort of a, uh, that would be something that a uh, traditional liberal, you know, in, in the old days would have said. This is something we need. This is a place where government can step in and make people's lives better, uh, and where the market, 
doesn't uh, do enough to, uh, to to govern itself. Yeah. Um, so you know, look, I I, I think I, I I think we're yeah, I think we agree on we yeah. agree on a lot of those. things. Well, I think that the fundamental thing that we agree on is that none of these views is illegitimate, and in fact that it's the interplay of all these views that I think helps to keep. You know, the, the excesses of each of them if taken in and of itself in check. And I think that's the great thing about an open society is that we have these, com- you know, competing views and it's that tension that is so important. It's the tension that kind of keeps the whole thing going and from, from coming off the rails. And so while it's easy to, you know, uh, get really upset with these other views, I think it's important to know that we need these views just like we need both sides in an adversarial system of justice. You know, I mean, that's why yep. we have, that's why we have defense attorneys and prosecutors because it's that tension between those two things that makes the entire system work. And I think that's how our, that's how democratic societies work as well. Yep. All right. Uh, on that note, I think that about does it. We kind of run out of, run out of time for this week. So thanks everyone for listening. If you have any questions for future episodes or any thoughts, comments, criticisms, we would love to hear from you. Our email is mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page where we post throughout the week is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. And we're also on Twitter at politicsguys. And we'd really appreciate it if you, you could subscribe to the show, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever podcast service you use. And sharing and retweeting our new show posts and tweets also helps out a lot. If you'd like to support the show financially, well, you can do that through the Patreon or PayPal links on our website. And if you enjoyed the show, check out the Politics Guys weekly newsletter. You can take a look at previous newsletters and sign up to have it delivered to your email inbox on our website, politicsguys.com. We'll be back with a new show next Wednesday. We hope you'll join us.